All right, Finn, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So initially, I came across your videos about uh, four or five years ago when you were dissecting the post-hardcore revival, which was something that I found so interesting uh, to hear it from your perspective. And I just want to get into you as a person, where you grew up, and the kind of local scene that you grew up in. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I grew up in the Seattle area. I'm from a town called Snohomish, Washington, which is eh, like half an hour north or so of Seattle. Uh, and I kind of really grew up like in the nineties, like hardcore scene, I guess you would say it was sort of, I mean, I was always into a lot of different stuff, but I would say like the hardcore scene was really kind of the place where I really felt the most at home back then. The big band in our area was a band called Undertow, which, you know, by the standard, like by big, I mean that, you know, a hundred people would go to their shows because, you know, hardcore was still not a big genre, but it was especially small back then. Uh, but I was into a lot of other bands in the area, like uh, The Accused and Forced Entry and stuff like that, more like kind of thrash metal sort of stuff back in the early 90s. And, you know, people think of Seattle, this was around the time that grunge was getting big and stuff. And people think of Seattle maybe as being like a great town for music. And it really never has been, um, especially, you know, back then it was like, randomly these like grunge bands got popular but that that was all most of those shows were like 21 and over so i couldn't even i, I didn't really want to go to any of those shows but you couldn't get into those if you were younger and like it was very hard to put on all ages shows and seattle being like way up in the northwest corner of the country the closest city is portland which is not really that big either you know and then from there maybe it's like boise idaho or something which is like not close at all like I don't know, 500 miles away or something. So a lot of bands just wouldn't even bother, you know, coming to Seattle because it just didn't make financial sense. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my thing is I mostly was into like, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in the Bay Area at the time that I was really into. And so I was sort of following that, you know, from a distance more so than anything that was happening locally. Understood. Well, it's really fascinating. So you say you grew up in the hardcore scene. So we're talking late 90s was the period you pegged that at? Early 90s. Early 90s. Okay. Yeah. So I, I guess for me, and why I asked this question is I my experience within the alternative scene was really at the peak of the MySpace era. So we're talking, of course, mid 2000s. Yeah. But everything that you do as it pertains to punk rock MBA, you're so familiar with all the nuances of all the genres. So I'm just wondering, yeah. how did you gain a fascination for that 2000s era? And especially as it pertains to, you know, the scene queen era, the MySpace era. Could you speak a bit more to that? Well, my job has been in like my actual career. A lot of people just know me for YouTube, but that's just sort of like a side quest. Um, my actual career has been like in product design and marketing, which I've been doing mm -hmm. for, you know, 20 years now. And to me, the, the real like fundamentally design and marketing is just about understanding human psychology and behavior. Like why do people do what they do and what do they find valuable and how do I make that uh, for them and then convince them that it's worth paying for. Like that's the job at the end of the day. And like the details of like how you design the product and, you know, what the marketing looks like and all that stuff, like that's important, but that's all downstream of understanding fundamentally, like how people think and why they behave the way that they do. And I have always observed 
you know, trends of human behavior. Like, I mean, that's like, have you ever seen the movie Terminator? Of course. You know, so, you know, when he's looking at the crowd and you see like the, you know, the heads up display, you know, that that's just how probably because I'm a little bit autistic. Like, that's just how I look at the world is just always like kind of uh, pattern recognition. Like, that's what I that's how my brain works is just pattern recognition. And that applies whether you're talking about like music or restaurants or, you know, whatever, like it doesn't matter what it is. And so the interesting thing to me with like my, the MySpace music, um, and, and I talk about music on YouTube just cause that's what, you know, that's what people want to hear me talk about. But, uh, the, the MySpace era in particular was interesting because it was so different. Like it basically broke all the quote unquote rules of the stuff that came before it. Because I think this is the first time that kids were exposed to such a broad variety of culture and people, and they could communicate with each other directly at scale in a way that just wasn't ever really popular before. And so you saw things like one of the things I noticed was that a lot of these kids would be into like, say, you know, a death core band like Job for a Cowboy, but they would also listen to like, you know, Lil John or something like that. And yes. <laughs> right. And that was yes. like totally unacceptable, even a few years before, you know, for somebody to be into like, you know, underground alternative music and also like some kind of like mainstream rap song would be totally unacceptable. And they just didn't, they just didn't even, I don't think they were even aware of those sort of, you know, norms and expectations. Um, and they certainly didn't care. And so it was very interesting to me to see them like, just overturn all the expectations and norms that, you know, had been true for the, I guess at that point, probably 10 or 15 years that I've been paying attention to this stuff, all of a sudden it's like, oh, the rules are different now. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then just in terms of, you know, MySpace, I, I, I started getting online in probably like 93 or 94, starting with wow. this thing called Usenet, which nobody even knows about anymore but um usenet was basically like a very early version of threaded discussion you could think of it as sort of like reddit um more primitive but kind of kind of like reddit i started getting into that so i've been paying attention again to sort of these online communities for a long time also and myspace was like the first version of that at scale because all the only people that were on usenet were just like giant nerds like me but then myspace you know was that at scale and Facebook also, but Facebook wasn't, you know, Facebook wasn't um, what it was for a few years after that. And so like basically just a combination of like, I saw that was interesting to me because I saw that as like a real um, like fundamental change in the way that culture was forming and spreading uh, due to technology. So that's what was really interesting about it to me. Okay, that's super fascinating. Um, that brings a couple of interesting points that I want to touch on before we kind of move into the realm of business and your segue into that. You touched on being neurodivergent. Um, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that due to the fact that I was having a similar conversation with a friend the other day about pattern recognition and how walking yeah. down the sidewalk, I could almost calculate the steps for somebody <laughs> <Yes>. to arrive. <laughs> Counting all my, you know, I've always done these weird yes. kind of little things. Tell me more about your experiences with that and how that's kind of shaped your worldview. Well, um, when I was a kid, 
um, or even an adult, the like if someone was autistic, that meant that they were like nonverbal and sat in a corner, like you know, shaking back and forth, and like mm-hmm. they were like profoundly disabled. Like that's what mm-hmm. we thought autistic was. Um, and so it never crossed my mind that that might be me because I mean, obviously, like I'm not that. Um, and so I started learning more about it, like as an adult and, and, and I've sort of struggled with a lot of things, basically my whole life of just like, I felt like I've been watching a different movie than normal people. You know what I mean? Just like, I don't understand how you are looking at this situation and you perceive things this way, because it's just so profoundly obvious to me that it's not that way. You know what I mean? I do. And just it's just obvious to me that the way that i look at the world is fundamentally different than you know i'll I'll say normal people but whatever word you want to use but and i always just thought that that was like me i thought there was something wrong with me or that i was just like an asshole or difficult or just like i i just felt like i was flawed in some way um but then i learned you know pretty recently like probably in the last five years or so i just learned more about this for example and uh and it's not even like social awkwardness because i'm not socially awkward like i don't have a problem talking to people or anything like that like there's maybe um a an an idea that you know people on the spectrum like have bad social skills and that might be true for some people but i don't actually think that's i don't actually think that that's like fundamentally true for me it's a lot of stuff sort of clicked into place for example um i get like very kind of flustered if my routine gets disrupted like i eat the same thing for breakfast every single day and i have for years me too and 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 i have zero interest in change i do not like trying new things like i like this why would i change that and if and if my routine gets disrupted i feel a little bit of a fight or flight response um and i'm able to kind of you know like manage that but uh other like kind of sensory things like if someone's mowing the like i i hate leaf blowers and lawnmowers i hate them um like much more than i should like it it doesn't make any sense but i'm like why am i like kind of angry at the fact that somebody's like using a leaf blower outside um i also get like really kind of upset by like if i see trees cut down like they're doing some construction down the street from us and it like when I see like someone that has cut down a tree, it to me, I feel the same way as someone else would feel if they saw like a corpse on a human corpse on the ground. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I actually do understand what you mean. Yeah, it seems to, to I don't I don't want to say to normal people, but let's just say those who are not neurodivergent, it might seem extreme. Yeah. But it's it's that coalescence of your nervous system uh, with your brain stimulus that just creates this res- physiological response yeah, yeah, that's so exactly. extreme. Right. Yeah, it's, it can't be helped. I understand. So for someone right. listening, they might say, how do you correlate? But no, you feel it. It is real. And it is it's what it is. My brain works for better or worse. Now, the flip side of that is that like, and I'm not, I, I, I don't think this makes me superior or anything like that but i have like extremely good pattern recognition skills i can almost always if i look at a system i can almost always understand how it works and given the inputs of a system i can predict the outputs of a system faster and better than like almost everybody Mm -hmm. Um, but that like has to be managed too because one thing i've noticed is that um people don't like to feel stupid and (laughs) 
no, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that they are stupid. I'm just saying like, I, it's, I, I've become aware over time that because I figure things out way faster than almost everybody. And like, by the time someone is like halfway done with their sentence, I'm like, yeah, I get it. Here's the answer. Completely. And, and I yeah, have to be careful true. with that because people don't like that. So I have to kind of, I've learned to be patient and let people sort of go at their own rate, you know? No, completely. That is a life skill. And I think that kind of gets into our conversation on business too, because it's learning how to navigate those realities of business and those communication skills. Yeah. Because I would feel the same way you do. I just want to jump right into it and say, yeah. it's X, it's Y, Right. you know, have it done with. So I think as far as neurodivergence is concerned, I think it's probably benefited you tremendously in business, um, of course. So I'd well, like to talk yes some more no, on that. But yeah. Tell me. Well, I mean, like, you know, like we were talking about, um, one of the things that, um, so I, I've told the story before, probably on some podcasts or something, but um, many years ago, I had uh, a boss, the CEO of the company that I worked for at the time, it was like an industrial design uh, uh, and engineering agency. And uh, he was not like a designer. He was like, uh, to make a long story short, he was like a sales guy who sort of ended up buying this company. Really good dude. But he was like sort of a just no nonsense Midwestern football coach kind of guy. And yeah. uh, he called me into his office one day and he's like, Finn, let me tell you something. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, nobody really gives a shit if you're good at your job. They only care about whether it feels good to work with you. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> That's not good. That's wild, though. That's the antithesis of like being productive and making things people care about. But, but that's reality, know. you know. I suppose you're right. Yeah. However, you know, I would say that one of the things that I'm, I, I have also realized about myself, and probably this is true of a lot of neurodivergent people, is, you know, the idea of the golden rule of like treat people as you want to be treated does not mm -hmm. work, because like <laughs> I don't really give a shit if someone is like really blunt with me. They could cut me off and say. Everything you just said is wrong. Here's why. And sure. as long as they're correct, I'd be like, mm, okay, thank you. You're right. Yeah, people I know don't I'm work that way. With you. That's true. But you still done so many amazing things that I think it's been to your benefit. I try to angle it that way because. Yeah, it, it has been. Yes, I agree. And because I think ultimately the people who who respect your output and respect everything you've done, not only as it pertains to your work with Punk Rock MBA, but your main work in marketing. I mean, I think they could probably recognize the amount of effort you put into everything. I mean, it certainly shows. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's tough. I think one of the things that I learned, I had a professor in college that told me this a long time ago, and it's very true, is that our strengths are also our weaknesses. And that's just sort of fundamentally true for everybody. And the key is to be aware of that. So yes, like I have super good pattern recognition skills and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like I talked about, the, the, the way that those are expressed, you know, the, the, the way that I express that, um, I, I have to carefully, I, like I don't really have to put very much effort, to be honest, into like finding solutions. Like that's not hard for me. Of course, that, like comes easily and naturally to me. And like, it's not hard um, where I have to put the effort in is is like basically in how I socialize that um, throughout a team, whereas most people probably are the opposite, you know, because like it's easy for them. Like, I'm not into like small talk. You know what I mean? Like same. 
I don't care what you did over the weekend. No hard feelings. It's not like, it's not like I don't like you. It's just like, why would I, I don't care what you did on Saturday. And why would you care what I did on Saturday? But I completely agree. Yeah. But I've learned that like, oh, if you want people to like, say yes to your ideas on Monday. And I guess this is like what it's like being an autistic person is like, I guess they call this masking. I learned that term. It's like, oh, on Monday, you should come in and ask people what they did over the weekend and then smile and act interested when they tell you. Because if you do that, then when you have to talk about work later in the day, they'll say yes to what you want. It's, it's completely true. <laughs> Honestly, these are these are nuances that I've probably learned from social media recently, too. I'm in the same position as you learning terms like masking and learning the implications of those things. So, yeah, it's super fascinating. Well, Finn... Could you tell me a bit more about that journey that got you into business and into marketing in the first place? I would love to hear just more about your path and, you know, where it's taken you. Well, for me, you know, I, I got started making fanzines back in the early 90s. Fanzine, for anybody who doesn't know, is like a do-it-yourself magazine type thing, you know, because back then this is before the internet as we knew it. And so, you you know, you'd put this thing together and then like, photocopy it and I sold them through the mail and blah, blah, blah. And I sold a few thousand of those by the time I was out of high school, which, you know, in hindsight, I I'm actually impressed by in some ways that's harder than what I do now. Because, you know, if you think about in 1994, how would you go about selling magazines to people in Finland, you know, from your parents' basement? Like it's not, well, yeah, it's not, not a very clear path, but I did it. And so what I realized is some people just want to create things. And that's totally cool. I respect that. But for me, I only feel fulfilled if I can create something that people will pay for. Because Understood. to me personally, and again, I'm not saying this is how everyone should think, but to me personally, that's how I know it's good. If people, even $1, like go up to someone on the street and ask them for a dollar and you'll see how hard it is to get even a dollar from somebody. Right? It's it's not easy. That makes sense. So. um I realized that's sort of the thing that is interesting to me. And I didn't know what marketing was or like, I didn't know, like I was not even aware, like I didn't know that that was even a job or like, I don't, I don't really know that word when I was like, you know, a teenager or whatever. Like, I don't think people, people didn't talk about like entrepreneurship and marketing and things like that back then. Um, I learned much later. Uh, so to make a long story short, I thought I wanted to be a graphic designer and I was a graphic designer for a long time. And I ended up working on a bunch of projects. Uh, I worked at an ad, ad agency in Seattle where he did stuff for like uh, Nintendo and Nike ACG and Red Bull and some other cool clients. And then I got that job at the uh, design agency where we did a lot of stuff primarily for Procter & Gamble, like Swiffer and Febreze and Tide and Balance and stuff like that. And what I realized is that the, the people who were um, who were solving the problems that I found interesting were people from like a business background usually that had a marketing role because like i don't really care what color the you know the the swiffer logo is you know there's designers like so i was my job was a designer and there's people that would like debate endlessly um uh, you know what color the plastic should be on the thing or you know should it be you know clarified pet or should it be blah 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 kind of plastic i'm like i don't give a fuck like <laughs> I, I recognize that these are like decisions that need to be made, but like, I don't care, you know, like, of course. because to me, again, using my autistic brain to me, 
the way I look at everything is like, what is the marginal return on my effort? So if I spend an hour thinking about this part of the system, what is the marginal return on that hour of investment? And in most cases, but not all, sometimes the greatest marginal return on your effort is to choose the color of the logo or the plastic, but not usually. And so what I realized, I, I probably sound really autistic right now and probably, um, this is probably, I probably should be talking about this differently, but. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Uh, yeah. Um, so what I realized is the people that were making the decisions that, in my opinion, drove the business the most, in other words, like, what product should we even be making and who should we sell it to? How do we distribute this thing? Like, what are the kind of fundamental consumer insights here? For example, like the way that they, um, the way that they found out about or, or created Swiffer is they did um, what's called ethnographic research, which is where you shadow people and watch them do things. And by, from observing their behavior, you uncover, you know, you learn things and uncover opportunities, which, you know, <laughs> makes perfect sense. You're, you're smiling because it's, it's wild, a it's, but it's yeah. perfect for someone like me who like, who runs on pattern recognition. And so what of they, course. so they watched people um, clean their homes. And what they found is that people would sweep and that was cool. And people would mop and that was cool. But there was this sort of in-between thing where there was no existing product that really worked for that. And so what they would do uh, is wrap a paper towel around a mop to get, it's like a, the like little fine grit that neither a mop nor a broom would catch. And they would, so they would solve for that by like taking a wet paper towel and wrapping it around a mop. And then they would, you know, do that. And so PNG was like, oh, we've seen people do this kind of thing. They call this like a compensating behavior. Um, we've seen people use this compensating behavior so many times, like we should turn this into a product. And so they did. And I was like, oh, that's the kind of thing that I would like to be doing. Um, a little bit upstream of what color is the logo. Now for Swiffer, the, the, the brand color is green and it's a nice shade of green, but if it was blue or purple or red, like the product would still be just as successful. You know what I mean? And I'm not putting down the work that the people did on that, but it's like, that's not really what's moving the needle here. And that's what I, that's what is motivating to me is like, I want to move the needle of the business. And so then um, I decided I was in school at the time and I dropped out of the design program and got a degree in management and marketing instead um, which ended up being a much better fit for me. Okay. That's super fascinating because it seems like you're so incredibly nuanced as it pertains to that particular topic of marketing and of business. And I'm curious how you've applied that to your own practice, because it's been interesting. You've worked with a lot of amazing brands. You've worked with a lot of amazing artists, but how did you tie those two concepts together? That very granular nuanced take on marketing that you're discussing now with your love for basically music? Um, well, I wouldn't say necessarily that I, like, I don't really listen to music, you know, anymore. Um, like I used to, but I don't really listen to music. Um, for sure. And, um, you know, what I do on YouTube is, I mean, it's not like I'm opposed to music or something like that, but like, you know, my interests are more along the lines of like, you know, product design and marketing. Like that's what sure. I think about all day. Um, what I do on YouTube is no different than anything else is I observed like, oh, I know a lot about this topic and there's a lot of people on YouTube who are interested in this topic. So 
I should make videos for them. And so the the very beginning of my channel, which you probably never saw, but I, I was, I talked about other stuff at the beginning. It was a lot of sort of like, you know, stuff about like business and self-improvement and stuff like that, but nobody cared. <laughs> they didn't give a shit. And um, again, me putting my hat, my, my sort of, I don't know any other way of sort of looking at the world of like, well, I, I I want to watch, I want to create a product that other people where, where there is demand for this product. I'm not going to put out videos that get 50 views because like, that's just not, that's not interesting to me. The challenge to me is like, can you make something that people pay attention to? And uh, so then I switched to talking about music and uh, that obviously took off. And so that's, you know, what I have chosen to focus on. Well, that makes perfect sense. And you've worked with some really cool bands as well um, that I'm also a huge fan of, um, of Mice and Men, A Day to Remember, mm -hmm. Periphery. Could you speak more to that, how that came to be and what your thoughts are going forward? Yeah. So um, back in 2013, um, I, got, uh, I, I, I got a job at a place called Creative Live, which was a Silicon Valley startup um, that does online education for creative people. Uh, originally at the time, they're sort of focused on photography. And uh, if anybody follows the startup world, you know, we raised, I think like about $60 million. And when I say we, I mean, you know, Chase, the, the CEO did, not me. I I played a minor role in sort of helping him put together some materials and stuff for that. But that's, that's him, not me. But uh, we raised like $60 million or something like that. Um, our lead investor for our series B was social capital, which is led by a guy named Chamath Polyhapatia, which if anybody, this, anybody knows who he is, like this is Chamath before he was Chamath when he had just sort of recently quit Facebook. Um, but anyway, so, um, uh, I joined that company pretty early, like right after we'd raised our series A and before we'd raised the series B. And uh, my role was just sort of undefined, as is often the case at these like early stage startups, as just like just show up and do shit. <laughs> um, and I, so we had, we were sort of focused on photography and and kind of like some general entrepreneur kind of stuff at the time. And I overheard uh, the co-founder; he was just standing next to my desk. I known him for a long time too, saying something about like, oh, maybe we should do stuff about like you know how to make music. And I was like, oh well, I could do that because uh, a couple of my good friends were like music producers um and i was like i'm pretty sure i could convince them to to do some classes for us and he was like all right you know go for it so i did and it ended up being more successful i think than we thought and uh so the first one uh went pretty well and then i you know sort of putting out the feelers about you know who else i could get to to teach a class and uh, so the first, I would say, like big success that we had was uh, we had Kurt from Converge do a class, which ended up selling really well, much better than we expected. And we're like, OK, there's something here. And then I got introduced to uh, Matt from Periphery via a mutual friend, did some with him. And that also went really well. And uh, I hit it off with the Periphery guys. I still talk to them like fairly often, uh, you know, especially like Misha and Matt. Uh, but they're all super cool guys very smart. I mean, you can see from their success that they understand how to, you know, how to run a business. And uh, Misha and Matt are both like, you know, in different ways, like very, very, very good business people. And so I worked with them on that stuff for Creative Live. And then uh, I think, I think just somehow or another, I think their manager was like, hey, do you know how to run Facebook ads? Because, you know, we we should do that. This is before people were really kind of doing that a lot. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. 
So I ran some Facebook ads for them and helped them do some other stuff. Like I was involved to get good drums in the beginning and Horizon Devices, which was like a pedal company that Misha was part of. I'm not sure if he still is. Um, and uh, then just sort of got introduced to people through that. You know, if you want to do this kind of work, like word of mouth is the way to go. That's the way any sort of like, you know, professional services business, you don't need a big social media audience. Like if you have one, that's cool, but it's not important. Word of mouth is the way that it's going to spread. If you do good work for one person, people will find out and they'll come to you and you don't like, that's the best form of marketing. I think it's really important people hear that because I think you have many gems as it pertains to this. Yeah, no, I do agree with you. Uh, one project kind of begets another. And yeah. um, sometimes you just got to get started. Do you have any advice for people? I'm I'm curious to hear your advice. I have my own thoughts, but what would you say in terms of advising people who want to take on like a lot of really significant work projects could be creative projects, things of that nature. Uh, the biggest thing is to, to focus, focus on as narrowly as possible, which a lot of creative people don't like to hear, but you'll hear this advice from almost everybody um, for a reason. So focus on one skill, for one particular type of client, if you want to, you know, be like a service provider, if you want to sell a product, same thing, it doesn't matter, like one product for one particular specific demographic, um, and just triple down on that. So you'll hear a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, I'm a graphic designer and a music producer, and I also do like motion graphics and video editing and, you know, social media. You cannot be good at all of those things, at least not you know, if, if you want to get good at those, all those things, I don't know anybody that's good at all of them. And, and, and if it was going to happen, it's going to take you 15 or 20 years. And also nobody is going to take you seriously. If you say that you do all of those things, you will be perceived as someone who's mediocre at a lot of things. And nobody wants to work with that person. They want to work with someone who is the best of the best of the best. Right. Um, so focus as narrowly as possible. So the formula I would use is come up with a pitch for yourself that says, I'm so-and-so, I do the following thing for blank, where the blank is the ideal client that you would like to work with. For example, let's say you're a graphic designer, say, um, I'm Finn and I'm a graphic designer. I make um, uh, promotional graphics for um, documentary films. Like that's the level of like focus that, that I think you should go for. And that may turn into over time, you could go broader than that, but you want to be, it's not important about being all things to all people. You want to be the right person for one very specific kind of person so that when they hear that, their ears are going to perk up and they're like, oh, that's me. I want to work with this person. But if you say like, oh, I'm an auto mechanic and I write poetry and I'm a cook and a skydiver, they're going to be like, I don't know what the fuck this guy does. I think it's super important. A lot of people are going to appreciate hearing this because I would agree with that completely. The narrow focus, and then eventually you can take on additional skill sets, but you have to be incredibly proficient and, of course, uh, well-respected in that particular yeah. niche that you occupy. Well, that brings some interesting questions up because we were talking about pattern recognition focus. I'm assuming, um, you know, also as it pertains to the tech industry in Silicon Valley, I would like to hear your thoughts on everything pertaining to AI, everything pertaining to how you see that influencing our world, and if those technological trends interest you. 
Um, are the kind of people that are listening to this like primarily like creative people? Yes. Okay. So creative people are, I think, mostly opposed to AI because they feel threatened by it and they think it's going to take their job. And for some people, that is true. But the people who are going to be threatened by AI in the near future are people who um, do not have a specific, unique point of view and don't do something. Basically, if you can be displaced by AI at the moment, you know, maybe in a few years, this will be different. But if you can be displaced by AI right now, that means you weren't good enough at what you do. And I don't mean to be blunt or harsh, but it's just a fact. Like, if you know stable diffusion or chat gpt is better than you you suck and you need to be better as just a harsh fact Completely. it's no different than any other time in human history when you know this has just been like there are countless examples of this when like some sort of device has put people out of business like you know a lot of people may not know this but we used to have elevator operators like when you got an elevator back in the 20s or something there was like a guy that's like what floor do you want well the idea of having an elevator operator now is stupid like why would you do that um and there's lots of examples of this so um my thought as to you know with like creative people and ai is like if you are truly if you have a truly unique point of view you don't have anything to worry about um and instead of fighting it and instead of like telling people not to use AI because that genie is out of the bottle, it's it's this that's just a silly thing to do to tell people not to do it. It's like telling people, you know, that they shouldn't drive cars. Like the genie is out of the bottle. Nobody's going to stop driving their car. So don't fight it. Use the tools to make yourself better, and just focus on finding that unique point of view that no AI can do. Agreed. And it's super interesting because I agree with you. I embrace it fully. Of course, personally, I'm also very much into transhuman transhumanism and definitely on the farther end of the extreme where I'm pretty much ready to merge my consciousness for whatever yeah, comes. Yeah, I mean, wh what other <laughs> choice do you have? Like that's whether that happens in 10 years or 100 years, I don't know. But like that's the direction we're going, whether you like it or not. So speaking to that, because I, I would imagine as someone who's neurodivergent, you'd be very fascinated in this. Speaking philosophically from your perspective, does that excite you? Do you feel like you want to live in a world that's ruled by logic as opposed to emotion? Um, so, okay, I will, if, if I didn't already sound autistic enough, Please. Um, I, I will, I will be more autistic. Let's go Super I, Saiyan. I, I've also realized that um, so like in economics, they talk about like normative versus positive economics, or you could think of it as descriptive versus prescriptive. I don't really invest any energy or like my brain just doesn't work. I don't have a part of my brain that's like, oh, the world should be this way. It's just, I just try to observe the way things are and act accordingly. So I don't really know. Like, I just don't understand looking at the world and being mad that like it doesn't work the way you want it to work. It just, I, I don't understand that. So am I excited about that? It's just like, I, I'm just going with the flow. You know, you can push. I mean, this is when I was younger, I guess when I was a kid, I used to do this a lot more, you know, like uh, I've heard people describe it as like pushing against the river. Yep. You know, that's just wasted energy, you know? So like, if that's the way the world goes, then 
I'm going to go with it. And if it's not the way it goes, then I'm going to go with that. But, you know, my sort of view of the world is that I want to understand what, you know, the current rules are and optimize, you know, my own position within those rules, whatever they are. That makes sense. That's, would you say that's like an input output? Yeah. That's extremely fascinating. So that is actually hyperlogical. So you're basically, it's, it's really like an input output response. Yeah. Um, from a technological perspective, you might actually be a machine. <laughs> I might be too, but that's pretty cool. Um, I mean, I, I know that's not the way most people see things, but it just, I just don't understand. Like, why would you, it makes no sense to me to like burn a bunch of energy being mad that, you know, the world doesn't resemble the ideal state in your head. Like, well, I don't know what to say. I, I wish dogs lived forever. I wish kids didn't get cancer, but they do. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. I guess, you know, speaking to that point, if you had to have an ideal, what might that be? And it could be looking out five or 10 years and saying maybe how you envision your life as it pertains to technology. Would you like to see society reshaped by artificial intelligence, maybe an artificially intelligent overlord ruling all over all of us? Would that be something that interests you? Well, the problem is that there's like, you know, second, third, fourth order effects that really nobody can, nobody can foresee except maybe some like kind of hypothetical, like AI overlord. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've just seen this so many times It's like those sort of second and third order effects. That's, that's where things go wrong. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I will say this, I think, um, I think fundamentally like human firmware is, uh, very flawed and flawed meaning, um, not necessarily designed, not conducive to our long-term survival as a species. I mean, it's like, it's very obvious, like humans, we all, for all as a, as a, as sort of a, a really simple example, everybody knows you shouldn't eat Doritos, but we all do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like everybody knows this. Everyone knows that fossil fuels are like a finite resource and uh, whether they're going to run out in 50 years or 200 years is sort of a secondary question of the fact that it's a finite resource. So obviously, like we should be working diligently on like getting off of that. But it's just sort of a facet of like human behavior is that we don't um, we don't uh, work to change course until there's like an imminent crisis. You know, like, do you know about like Easter Island where, where the, uh, where Stonehenge is located? Basically it's the, something similar. Yeah. So you're, th it's the big stone heads, the uh, Moai yes. heads. Yes. Yeah. So that used to be like, you know, densely forested and populated by humans and stuff. And they cut down to make a long story short, they deforested and cut down all the trees and they ever, never, everybody died. And it should have been obvious at some point, there's somebody that cut down literally like the last tree. And should have been like, I don't know, guys, maybe this isn't a good idea. They're like, well, I don't care. Uh, I need a fire tonight because I'm cold. Right. And, right. you know, I, I don't know exactly how that went down. But the, the point is that it, it, it should have been obvious at some point that, like, we should probably stop cutting down these trees. And it probably was obvious, but they still did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is like a very predictable thing. There's like names for like diffusion of responsibility and the tragedy of the commons and stuff like that. Um, and uh so my view on these things is like you know human firmware is very flawed 
and I'm just here for the ride. People are going to do what they're going to do, and uh, I'm just here for the ride. Well, that makes sense. Okay, well, I like your perspective on this. I, I try to be optimistic as much as I can, but I'm like you. I notice these patterns, and I think to myself, you know, we're, we clearly make decisions that aren't in our best interest, but yeah. again, to your point, perhaps human behavior. Um, let's go kind of high-low, speaking to sure. high-low juxtapositions, and let's go <laughs> incredibly low. So okay. you have a knack for dissecting music trends with a mix of irony and insight. Yeah. So of course you spoke to emo and new metal revivals. I've seen a lot of your memes. Let's talk butt rock. Uh-huh. Let's just talk. Well, butt butt rock's rock. cool again, which is interesting. I, I knew this was going to happen because a hundred percent of the time, there are no exceptions to this. What was like laughably ridiculous and uncool in the past becomes cool and there are no exceptions to this. Some things take longer. I mean, Limp Biscuit is such a great example of this. There is no band that was more hated than Limp Biscuit in whatever, 2001. None. They're just universally despised. And now it is the opposite, right? Same thing with emo bands. I knew this would happen with Butt Rock too. And you can see like maybe just in the past couple months, something flipped and now it's cool to like Creed. <laughs> I noticed that, yes, and they're going on tour. I felt the same way. I felt that Butt Rock was making a comeback. It was inevitable, I guess. Yeah, it was the it's, Thanos it's inevitable. Of music. Yep. So whatever, you know, whatever the current generation of like whatever late 20s to early 30s people liked when they were teenagers is going to be cool again. And there are no exceptions to this. <laughs> like well, MGK, pretty- in 10 years, maybe 15 years, whatever, people are going to people are going to hold up MGK as an example, like real music. They're going to be like, what's wrong with kids days these days? Listen to this crap, like blah, 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 whatever the new artists are, you know, back in my day, we had real music like MGK and, and people listening to this are going to be laughing, but I guarantee you it's going to fucking happen. I can't even imagine the future in general pertaining to what music will be like 10 or 15 years from now. But, you know, I have to admit, Butt Rock is really fascinating me at the moment. I, I kind of do want to touch on what you think the future of music will be like, but talk to me on, are you interested in Butt Rock? Do you have some favorite Butt Rock bands that you're kind of into right now? Or I mean, I, I think a lot of the songs are like legitimately really good. Um, you know, uh, like at least sonically appealing, you know, lyrically, maybe not so much, but like a song like, you know, Lips of an Angel by Hinder, that's a fucking great <laughs> chorus. Like, I sincerely think it's a great chorus. I sincerely think Creed is like a really good band. Now, obviously all these bands were like really corny too, but I mean, they had just undeniably fucking great like hooks. I agree. And the fashion, what's your take on the fashion? Cause I've been seeing a lot of your memes on that. Absolutely. So we got to go down the butt rock checklist. You need the, uh, the soul patch, or as I like to call it, the landing strip. You got to have some chunky rings. Uh, you got to have um, the boot cut bedazzled jeans. Uh, leather wrist covering wrist accessories are a very important part of butt rock. Um, you know, ideally the leather wrist cuff, um, but you know, any sort of like chain around your wrist works, a chain wallet also important. There's also, I don't even know what brand they are, but there's like those kind of shoes that those guys never stopped wearing. They, they look like they're not work boots. They're like, you know, they're, they're leather shoes, like low top leather shoes. I don't even know what brand it is, but they all wear them. Okay, so I'm going to go down this rabbit hole later, I'm sure, just based on what you're saying, because I think you and I are actually a lot alike in that we look at things, I think, to agree 
to with a degree of irony, but also in a non-ironic manner. Yeah. So for example, you know, speaking to fashion I was interested in, I was doing collaborations with brands like Ed Hardy and stuff like that before okay. there was a Y2K revival. Right. And why I think that's interesting is like, in my mind, it was so uncool. It was cool. Yes. And then to everybody else, it took them kind of time to reinforce that, hey, this is a wave of nostalgia. Yeah. So well, what, I really, what, with you. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. What I appreciate about Bot Rock is just that, like, I do not like pretentiousness. That is, like, just anathema to, like, my soul. Like, anybody that takes themselves seriously or, like, thinks that they're really fucking important or whatever, just, like, I cannot handle that. And Bot Rock is probably, like, the least pretentious, like, genre of music. Like, nobody, nobody in a Bot Rock band thinks that they're any sort of like important intellectual or whatever like the fans don't give a fuck like i've made just about every fan base like irrationally angry by making some silly joke about like their fucking shoes or something but rock fans never get mad they don't care because i have my model is that um the amount of uh irl social currency that a fan base has is inversely correlated with their happiness and how chill they are. So, you know, if you look at like, you know, Midwest emo or ska, something like that, these people are turbo dorks, IRL. Nobody cares about them. Nobody likes them. They're total outcasts um, and uh, incredibly angry and touchy online. But rock fans, they don't give a fuck because they're just too busy, you know, um, having babies and driving their F-150 they don't give a shit if you make fun of their shoes from 2004. This is absolutely wild. No, I grew up, look, but it's, here's the thing, right? So I grew up in the South um, and very different part of the country. There was a lot of juxtapositions in my life, but I say that to say this. When I was growing up, there was obviously a rift between the trendy emo kids like myself. I would, if you want to categorize it that way, seeing kids yeah. and everybody else who was interested in butt rock or something akin to and then that. The Maybe overlap even... is three days grace who actually I love. <laughs> They're great. So that's that's incredibly wild. But I guess I say that to say this, I've circled back to everything as a child that I kind of would see myself out of, I now actually unironically love. Yeah. So it kind of came full circle. I don't know. Maybe you feel that way too. Um, No, because I've just never really, I, I've never really been sort of closed-minded about music. Like, I mean, even... When I was a kid, I would listen to like, you know, Morbid Angel and, you know, whatever, Dr. Dre and Madonna. Like, I just never, I just never thought that way. I've not, never been like a tribalist kind of person. Excellent. Um, but, but I understand what you're talking about. Uh, and I think, you know, when you're a young person, it's like a teenager, especially like so much of it is about, um, establishing your identity and telling people who you are and where you belong in the world and stuff like that. And so a lot of it is like rejecting the thing, you know, in group and out group dynamics, basically. So if I reject the out group, then that will show people what in group I belong to, which is, you know, very, I don't know, just kind of silly, kind of like low vibrational behavior to me, you know, to like, define yourself by what media you press play on um but that's just how uh that's how a lot of people work i completely agree so you know speaking to that going forward 
and looking out five and 10 years in the music scene, I know this is going to be difficult to predict because everything is happening so quickly, yeah. but I do want to get your opinion on this. What do you think the state of affairs will look like in the alternative music scene, looking out five to 10 years? And I preface by saying this, you called, uh, even as it pertained to MySpace, that coalescence of rap and basically emo being on a, the same mixtape you know for me it was maybe yeah. under oath and young jeezy on the same right. cdr right so looking at those combinations now everything is just coming together and there's not as much tribalism what do you see happening in the next five to ten years um i think that music in general will continue to become um i'll, I'll call it more like audio than music if that makes mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. um because if you look at what's happened in the past, I don't know, five years, but really the past like three years as TikTok got like super, super popular, um, you know, music is no longer like a prime. Listening to music is no longer a primary activity. People don't like sit down and listen to an album the way they did when I was a kid. Um, and so now increasingly music is like the the background audio to something visual, whether that is a video game or a TikTok or something like that. Like a lot of songs now that are popular on TikTok, it's not quite accurate to say that the song is popular on TikTok. There's a piece of the song that is popular on TikTok that's oftentimes used as kind of like, we'll call it the punchline to a joke or, um, or, or, or as a way to like, uh, I don't know, set the mood for like some sort of piece of video for example like taylor swift uh the song cardigan the part it was very interesting to me that was popular on tiktok but the part that got popular was not like the hook or like some sort of lyrics or something like that it's just it's a part of the bridge that's just sort of this like i don't know ambient sort of you know sound that you wouldn't even know was taylor swift unless you know someone told you and people use it in these like like uh, one example of it that i saw was like this woman talking about like her kid had to have all these like surgeries when he was a baby and stuff it's just like it feels very emotional like just it's it's almost like the score of a movie and because tiktok in the app tells you what song it is you know that helped make the song more popular but it it, it could have been as we've seen on TikTok, it could be any part from any song. It's just really like, is there a part of this piece of music that can be used as audio to either set the emotional tone for something that's happening or as the punchline of the music? It's like, oh, I did this dance and then I fall down and there's like, you know, some funny lyric about falling down because, you know, her titties are so big or something like that. And so I think that's where it's going to go, which I know a lot of people aren't going to want to hear. But um, I, I just I think music increasingly is going to be, you know, basically audio, more like a score than like a song. And uh, also the uh, another another kind of trend that I would see as supporting that is like if you look at what's happened in rap in the past seven or eight years or something like that. Um, the music itself is really secondary to like the, the rapper's life and personality. So like we care about them because of their huge personality or because of their like crazy life or something like that. Um, and we pay attention to their music because of who they are as a person 
and what they do, not the other way around. So it used to be like, oh, I really like this song, so I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to find out more about this person. Now it's the other way around, you know, that there's people will say like, um, I don't know, someone like Ice Spice to me is a good example of all of this is like, no offense to her, but I don't think she's particularly music ta musically talented, but she's really good looking. She's really charismatic. Her song, her breakthrough song had like a moment that really made sense in the context of a lot of TikToks. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be more stuff like that. That makes perfect sense. So really to put a wrapper on that, to put a bow on that, you view uh, music going forward as being more so content, but a soundtrack yeah. to a visual. Yeah. yeah, that's what I think. Interesting. Now, I there's still it's not going to go away. You know, there's still going to be people playing shows and like none of the stuff that happens now is going to go away. Um, but if anybody thinks that it's going to go back to the days where I mean, there's a lot of people, especially in the rock world that like value a lot of things like they're into albums, not singles and live shows, not videos. And like that stuff is never going to go away. But that's just not the way the world is headed. That makes perfect sense. Now, you're effectively articulating exactly where the trends are headed, and I'm sure you've had similar conversations with your friends who are musicians as I have. And I mean, it is what it is, and it goes back to our previous point in the conversation about advancement and just yeah. whether it be AI or anything or just even apps themselves just to get on board, embrace it, whatever it is, and continue yep. progressing. So, like, there's a lot of people, a lot of musicians who – kind of get stressed about this and i understand why because they're like well i'm a musician i'm not a big personality i don't want to make videos i don't want to like be a clown you know i don't want to do all the things that it takes to kind of get attention in this world and i completely understand that but that is just sort of the reality of it and if you think that you know just making songs and putting them out there into the world that somehow people are going to discover them it could happen, but I would say that's, you know, that's probably not going to happen. So how do you adapt to this? Well, I would pair yourself with somebody who is a fit for that. Someone with not a lot of musical ability. For example, uh, one of my good friends made a song for Logan Paul. Uh, <laughs> Logan Paul, amazingly good at being a clown that gets attention, right? He's one of the best in the world at this. Not a lot of musical ability. So you pair yourself with someone like, my friend Morgoth Beats, who is an incredible musician, but a very low-key, like mellow personality. That's the way to adapt. That or makes perfect sense. to adapt. No, collaboration is key. I think you're absolutely right about that. And um, you know, speaking to collaborations with you in particular, who are some people you would love to collaborate with in the future in any capacity? Brands, people, things like that. I'd love to hear. Well, I I'm thinking about starting a business focused podcast. Um and I don't really have like a super clear idea of what that would look like yet, but um probably the podcast that's closest to what I have in mind. There's a company called Reforged um run by a guy named Brian Balfour that does a show called Unsolicited Feedback. That's probably closest to what I have in mind where they um talk you know, in very specific action, like I'm not into like what I would call like info porn of just these sort of like vague, broad, inspirational kind of concept conversations with people that just talk about platitudes. Like I get why that's popular and stuff. I, it's not for me. I don't care. 
Um, what I'm interested in is like, for example, the one I just listened to this morning while I was working out, this is, again, this is how autistic I am. I listen to like marketing podcasts while I'm lifting weights. Um, they were talking about the rise and fall of Cameo and specifically like at a very tactical level, like why Cameo as a company failed to capitalize on the wave that they had, you know, from COVID and what they could have done differently. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe that would be something that I'd be interested in doing. Um, and the kind of people that I would like to have on would probably, you know, mean nothing to the people listening to this, but, um, really anybody that any, I'm interested in talking to anybody that runs any kind of successful business. And I really don't care whether it's like name value or not. It could be someone that just runs a dry cleaner or landscaping business. I, it, it does not matter to me what it is. Like I respect the shit out of anybody that is able to like run a viable business of literally any kind. I agree. I totally it's just agree with so that. so goddamn hard. Well, you know, what's interesting is when you go to a small town, people always have these perceptions of the way small towns function, right? And I say that because having lived in big cities like you, but especially Los Angeles, you see a lot of internationally facing companies or brands or yeah. people, but Little do they know that some of the wealthiest, most successful people run very low-key endeavors in small towns, yep. and basically you would have no idea, but they are by far just the most successful what they do. So I'm like you. I've always found uh, fascination in that. I'd love to see you do that. Like, I'm interested in parking lots as a business. It's a great business. Like, you got to come up with a lot of capital, I would imagine, to like buy these things in the first place, but you know, let's take aside COVID. But other than that, it's basically like very predictable cash flow. You know, you buy parking lots in some place like, you know, whatever, like West Hollywood or whatever. I'm sure it's cheap or sure it's expensive, mm -hmm. but you know that thing's going to be full every day and they're going to fucking complain about paying 80 bucks a day or whatever, but they're going to pay it. I completely agree. It's super fascinating. Yeah. It's like businesses that aren't the most sexy, but yeah. that, again, provide that cash flow, provide that revenue quickly and effectively. Yep. I mean, I don't know. That might be the direction the world is headed in regardless. Because Storage AI... units, that's another one. Like a friend yes. of mine who's like an investor, he was so excited about this. He's like, dude, we're investing in this and this. It's the best business in the world. People pay you to just put their shit in a box and then they never even come and look at it. It's the best. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. No, I think if... Uh... I, I think hard, tangible assets like that really are the key to diversification. What? Let me ask you this question then, because that's interesting. What would be something obscure, a business you would like to own or run in the future? Uh, well, I'm into uh, I'm into soft like SaaS businesses, software as a subscription or software mm -hmm. as a service. Sorry. So anything that you like buy a subscription, there's lots of reasons why I like those. Number one, that the margins are very high. So it's, you know, like whatever, 90% plus gross margin. Okay. Number two, they scale very well. The marginal cost of serving an additional user is effectively zero for most of them. You know, whatever the cost of AWS or whatever is, which is probably a few pennies for most of them, they scale really well. Um, so that's the most attractive kind of thing to me. Like B2B SaaS is the most attractive business in the world, you know, because if you take something like Salesforce, you know, uh, although Salesforce is actually not profitable, so maybe that's not the best example, but we'll use Salesforce or Oracle or any of these like big ERP companies, you know, you, you, you're essentially the switching costs are so high. Once you're locked into one of these things, even though everybody hates it, like, zero people like oh god salesforce is the best i'm so excited to like log in every day and like 
you sell like everybody fucking hates it but you got it there's only so many options they all suck and once you're locked in it is so expensive and difficult and annoying to rip it out you just sort of roll your eyes and accept the pain and pay them millions of dollars a year for the privilege understood well there has to be a metaphor somewhere in there as it pertains to ecosystems and yeah, you know yeah, same thing same thing it's like i mean this basically all what we're talking about is like effectively everyone wants to be a monopoly which mm -hmm. is the reason why we need laws to prevent that because you know at a certain point it becomes like dysfunctional to society if we enable too much rent seeking but that's what everyone wants is is they want to um extract rents in the economic sense you know i mean look at like look at like aws for example for anybody who doesn't know it's amazon web services which hosts something like 40 percent of the internet like netflix and the fbi and the cia and stuff like that basically they have a tax and then azure is microsoft's equivalent of that both of them have a uh 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 without actually having equity in these startups they effectively have equity in all the startups because as this company grows their aws bill is going to grow as well right so right. they're they're effectively taxing you know they're, uh, as they call it infrastructure toll collectors like that's the ultimate business is being an infrastructure toll collector basically being the base layer that a lot of businesses effectively operate on top of. Exactly. Exactly. That's what you want to be. The infrastructure toll collector, the guy that owns the only well in town. <laughs> yeah. You do see that a lot and it could be even an art too. It's when people like take it, for example, you're a rapper and then eventually you want to diversify own hard assets, but maybe be infrastructure for other artists to build their careers on top of, you know, maybe it's even a record label. It's yeah, interesting. You know, I, I, I would, uh, there's a reason why no sophisticated investor will touch anything related to music. However, mm -hmm. at the same time, if you know it, there's plenty of people that get rich from music. So just because an investor won't touch it, you know, it may still be a good business for you. I completely agree. So I think that brings us to our final question because I was incredibly fascinating to talk business with you. I think there is a coalescence between business and art, of course, and I think yeah. people can appreciate that and they have a lot to learn from you specifically. But as it pertains to music, and I know you say you weren't listening to music as much, but who are you truly listening to and infatuated by? Maybe a particular band or singer? Um... I mean, honestly, I don't listen to music other than, you know, for work. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I, I, yeah, I really just don't. Um, the, the last thing that I listen to is um, just a, a random Spotify playlist called Dark Academia for Studying because uh, my son was crying and uh, I needed something to sort of like drown it out. And anything with like lyrics to me is distracting. Um, because I can't not listen to the lyrics, if that makes sense. Of course. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't really listen to anything with lyrics while I'm trying to, to get work done. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing great stuff. I mean, I think the new Beartooth album is really cool. I genuinely, I like, like I respond to lyrics a lot. Those matter to me. Um, I think the lyrics on that album were really cool. Um, I like Lakeview a lot. They're sort of like a country metal band, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was listening to a lot of pop country for a while because I like the lyrics, but you know, country is going through this moment now where everything's sort of getting dark and alternative with people like Zach Bryan and stuff like that. And I'm just not into that. Um, so I'm kind of soured on country right now. And I don't really feel like there's anything happening right now that is grabbing my attention. And I'm not, that's not me being like, oh, everything sucks now because like I, I'll never be that guy. I'm just saying, of course my personal like just when i press play on music now there's there's not a lot i hear that that grabs my attention that doesn't mean it's objectively bad it just means that it isn't grabbing my personal attention no i totally understand i'm i'm interested in a smooth jazz playlist right now as well i've definitely entered this period in time where as much music as i'm always consuming from the alternative scene i definitely need just like smooth jazz to to concentrate on work so yeah, i get it i'll tell you what what i have been listening to a lot of similar to that is uh are you familiar with the the genre of PlayStation Jungle? No. Oh, from like the PlayStation 1 ads from the 90s? Yes. So basically a lot of those games had like really good like jungle and drum and bass soundtracks. Uh for example like Ridge Racer and stuff like that. And yes. uh, so there's all these like YouTube playlists that are just like 4-hour compilations of like PlayStation Jungle. So I've been listening to a lot of that stuff. And there's other people that make stuff like inspired by it, but I prefer listening to the actual original game music i'm obsessed with that um i'm obsessed with that now that's very interesting that you say that i'm gonna go check that out um finn it's been incredible speaking with you today um i think we touched on a lot of cool things pertaining to both art and business which was an absolute pleasure so i'm glad we got to speak to the business because you're incredibly knowledgeable thank you for having me of course well i look forward to having you again sometime and uh have a great rest of your day brother i appreciate you you too Thank you, Ben.